Hi, I'm Dan, and I want to welcome you to Church Online. If it's your first time, please take a minute and fill out a quick guest link on our website after the broadcast. We would love to connect with you, no matter where you're watching from. You can also give online by going to lifechurchutah.com or by texting LCGIVE to 95577 at any time during this morning's service. Once again, thank you for making Life Church Online a part of your weekend. For more information, visit us at lifechurchutah.com. Well, your notes for today's message. I want to wrap up our, our series that we started uh, the first of this month called A Church on the Move by talking with you about being effective in your prayer life. And, and in this series of messages, we have tried to share with you what I believe makes a church powerful for God. But really, when we're talking about being powerful for God as a church, what we're really talking about is being powerful for God personally. Because the church is only as strong as the people within it. It's only as, as close to God as the people within it. It's only on the move if the people within it are on the move for the Lord. So what I'm really talking about is the people in the church. You see, God isn't concerned about the church as an institution. It's, it's not about the, the church as an organization. That's why I will tell you, and I believe this with my heart, I don't mean to be offensive, but the church did not need restoration because the church has never been about an organization. The church has always been about people. Now, people have to have organization in order to function, but that's not the heart of God's church. The heart of God's church is you and me and our heart with God. And so the problem with the church has never been an institutional problem. It's never been an organizational problem. The, the greatest problem of the church has always been a heart problem. And that is to say, the heart of the people who attend that church or who are part of the larger church, the church, the body of Jesus Christ, that the heart of those people. There have been times in, in church history where the heart of the people in the church has been on fire for God. And there have been historical times where the flame has dimmed to a flicker. And it has needed revival. It has needed uh, an infusion of God's spirit in a new way. But the problem has never been an organizational problem. It's been a heart problem. And the problem that some people have in terms of, of losing their, their passion for God has created within them what Jesus called a, he said, you have lost your first love. It is possible to receive Christ as your Savior, be filled with his spirit, and yet not maintain that and fall off in a coldness in your relationship with God. That's exactly what Jesus said to a group of believers who were a part of the original church in a Greek city by the name of Ephesus. You've heard of the New Testament book of Ephesians that was written 
to Christians in a Greek city called Ephesus. And to that group of people in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said, I know your deeds, your hard work, your, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found, themselves, had found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Man, what a pedigree. These guys are, are I mean, this, this seems to be a great group of people. But verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. In other words, it's become institutionalized to you. It's become formal to you, but it no longer is motivated out of your heart. And that's always been the big challenge throughout history for these 2,000 years. Keeping our hearts on fire for the Lord. That's why the first two weeks of this series of messages, we talked with you about the necessity of developing a strong praise life. Because it's been my observation that not not universally, but generally, people who are great praisers of God are people who are great lovers of God. They are on fire for God. Now, that's not always true. Some people go through a form and it's not really coming from their heart. But generally speaking, people who are great in their expression of praise to God are great in their expression of, of, uh, of love for God as well. So for the first two weeks, I spoke the first week, Pastor John spoke the second week. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to those messages. It will give you important instruction about how important praise is. Then last week, we moved over to the subject of prayer, that a church on the move must be a, a praying church. Christians who are strong are praying Christians. You must develop that strongly in your life. And Ron Ock was our teacher last week. And what a marvelous job he did. If you didn't hear his message, again, go to the podcast from last week. What great teaching he gave us both in morning and the evening. We had an evening service last week. And if there were two words that I think would summarize Ron's uh, messages to us, it would be these two words right here, obedience and glory. He taught us that when we are obedient to God, when we follow God's word, that God gives to us not only... Uh, the, the, the thing that we've been asking for, when he speaks to our heart and we obey him, he, he moves not only in our life to answer our prayers at that point, but he begins to give us more. He compounds it. Greater degrees of blessing, greater degrees of revelation, greater degrees of glory in, in him. And, and so what I'm saying to you is when, when you're obedient to the voice of God in your life, the scriptures will have taught us that he will take you beyond where you have been, and you'll begin to experience greater things. The second word would be the word glory, which he taught us about on Sunday night, in which he shared that, that, that this must be the motive of our prayers. Sometimes we pray very good prayers, but we're praying them with a wrong motive. And the book of James talks about that. He says, you have not because you don't ask, but sometimes you don't have because you ask, and the King James word is amiss, or another way of saying that is you, you ask out of uh, the plan of God, and, and you're asking for something that's, that's off the mark, and he says you've got to always keep your motives in check because you can be praying for a good thing, 
But you've got to pray that God is glorified through that, not just that you are helped or strengthened or, or somehow in some way improved. Does that make sense? It's that God is the focus of or the motive of your prayer. So, Lord, I pray that you will have glory in my physical body. I pray, Lord, that your glory will flow through my physical body. However you want to do that, Lord, I pray that you will glory. And so God brings strength to my physical body, not just to deliver me from pain or, or from weakness, but God brings strength to my physical body that I might be for your glory, that what you do in me is for your glory, and so forth and so on. We can talk about all kinds of different prayers, but that's what he taught us. I thought that was powerful, powerful insight about the subject of prayer. So today, I want to talk to you then about how to make your prayer life effective. Probably most of us have experienced the frustration of praying and feeling like maybe nothing happened. It's the frustration of seemingly unanswered prayers. And it can be one of the most puzzling and confusing of times in, in our lives. Why didn't God answer my prayer? Now, I wish I had all of the answers to that question, but the truth is, I sometimes struggle with questions too. I don't have everything figured out either. This is, after all, a life of faith, and there will be times that you'll believe, not because you have it all figured out, but because God's word says that this is the case. And so you believe it. But I, I sometimes have questions. Now, I don't think having questions is wrong. I just think that it's important that you let your questions take you somewhere, that you, they take you to someone. Because what my observation is too many people stop with questions and they never go anywhere with their question. They get angry. Maybe they get bitter. They pull away from God because they have questions because God didn't answer the prayer the way they wanted or in the timing that they wanted it. Something about it frustrates them. And so they pull away from God. Well, where should you go when you have questions? Where you should go is the word of God because that's the basis of our faith. Nothing that you receive in your spirit trumps God's word. God's word trumps everything else that you feel in your life. It is the solid foundation upon which your life and your faith is built. Who you go to is Jesus because Jesus is the answer. The internet is not the answer. Just a thought. Go to Jesus. He is the answer. In my struggles with prayer, I have come to some conclusions through a lot of years of serving God. And those conclusions have come from personal Bible study. Those conclusions have come from the, the inspiration of other people teaching on prayer like we had last week. And those uh, conclusions have come from my own experience. And I've come to the conclusion that effectiveness in prayer will involve four keys. And I want to give those four keys to you quickly this morning. Number one is the key of praise. The key of praise. Now, we've already talked about praise as a powerful weapon of victory. I talked about that the first week. Pastor John expanded on that the following week, about how this is a point of, believer, uh, point of victory in the believer. 
and as well, it is a bridge to our intimacy with God. So that's what we've taught you the first two weeks of this month. Again, if you didn't hear it, listen to it on podcast. It'll help your life. So I'm not going to go into any further detail on praise other than to say it is a mighty weapon for God and it's a bridge to intimacy with God's heart. And that's what you want to have. The second key that I want to give to you this morning, I would use the word confess. What do you confess? You confess God's word. You confess God's word. It's important that you understand just how powerful the word of God, the Bible, is. I will go on record to say that the Bible is unlike any other book ever written in the history of the world that exists in the world today. It, it contains the very life, the breath, and the power of Almighty God within it in a way that no There's some other good books, but none of them can contain the power that the Word of God, the Bible, does. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active. I love that because that tells me that it's not dead, that it didn't die out with the apostles 2,000 years ago. This thing is still working. This thing's still alive. Why? Because the God behind it is still active and still working, and he is very much alive. I love how the New Living Translation puts that. It says the Word of God is alive and is powerful in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it'll say all Scripture is inspired. The Greek word there means the breath of God. So it's saying that the breath of God comes through the Scripture, which is the Bible. This is the breath of God speaking to us. So the Bible is God breathing. I want you to get this image in your mind. It's God breathing his life into you. When you read the Bible, the life of God is coming into you. This is not just a book of inspiration. This is not just a book of guidance. This isn't just a book of correction because it says correction. Hey, even rebuke. I know that's not PC, but God's not PC. He'll rebuke you if you need it. How many of you know that to be true? Uh, It'll, he'll correct you and he'll use his word to be, uh, to, to be that correction point. But it's more than just these things. The word of God is God breathing his life into your spirit. Because you see, you're more than just a physical body. You also have a spiritual being to you. You can't see it, you can't touch it, but you know it's there. You can sense it, you can feel it inside. It's alive, it'll last forever. It'll never die. Your body will die, but your spirit will never die. And God connects with us on the spiritual level. His word breathes into our lives his very life. So when we read God's word, it transforms the way that we think. I, I like to put it this way. It changes the DNA of how you think because the world gives you a certain way of thinking. The world gives you a certain way of, of comprehending life, of right and wrong. We've got to change that. And we can't change it on our own. The only way that it can be changed is if the Word of God gets in us and starts rewriting the, 
you need some new computer chips in there, in your brain, you know? You, the wires have, have gotten perverted by the world. Now we've got to get them in the right position and start functioning right. Does that make sense to you? I'm trying to make this understandable. The Word of God starts, starts doing that, re, rewrites our mental thinking so that we don't see life from a worldly point of view anymore. We start uh, seeing life from a spiritual point of view. So we don't have worldly thinking only. We have spiritual thinking as well. And that thinking transforms every part of how we relate to the world as a whole and how we relate to stuff that's going on in our lives. So the more you get God's word into your heart, the more you start seeing life from God's perspective, from God's point of view. And when you start seeing life that way and you move into obedience like Ron talked about, it brings victory to your mind and to your heart and to your circumstances. God begins to move in miracles in your life. So the more you read the word, the more you are transformed, which releases God's power into your circumstance. But God's word do more, does more than just transform your thinking. It also brings God's power to bear upon the circumstances of your life. I want to move us back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says that God's spirit hovered over the lifeless earth. The earth was without form and void and empty and waste, and darkness was upon the face of the very deep, and the spirit of God was moving. Another English word for the Hebrew there translated moving would be hovering. We understand what it means to hover. Uh, brooding would be another good word. So the Spirit of God is brooding over the face of the earth. That word brooding gives us a very interesting picture. A hen broods, broods her chicks, her eggs rather, and brings them to hatch by brooding. So if the hen lays the egg and doesn't brood over the egg, it will not hatch. It takes the brooding to produce the life. So there, there's the conception, then there's the brooding, then comes the life. Another analogy, a winter storm can brood over the Wasatch Front and dump, dump tons of snow on us here in Salt Lake City. We all know that to be true. Those are two examples of how brooding works. The point is brooding brings development. It causes things to happen. Whether we're talking about a chicken, whether we're talking about a snowstorm, or whether we're talking about creation itself, the same concept is happening here. The Spirit of God is brooding over this lifeless planet that God created. He broods over the deep in Genesis 1. And that act of the Spirit brooding over the earth brings into being creation and life itself. And the Bible says, then God said, let there be. And it goes down through a whole grouping of things that came into being when God said, let there be. Everything from light to the human, to, to human beings. All and everything in between. And this all happened by the power of God's word that was spoken by God himself. God didn't just think it, he spoke it. Are you understanding me? He spoke 
His word. There's power in God's spoken word. Because that same spirit hovers over God's words with the same breath of God making it powerful, a powerful, miraculous word in our lives. And when we speak that word of God's power and his powerful life, that life is then released into whatever situation you are facing that feels dead, it feels hopeless, it feels you feel despairing over it, but suddenly something different gets a hold of your heart because you're speaking God's word over this thing and it doesn't have a chance. The word of God will trump your circumstance, your issue, your disease absolutely every single time. It's the power of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, uh, also from the Amplified Bible. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down, or relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. I don't know how much more emphatic God can get with us than that. So we take, uh, take comfort, verse 6, and are encouraged, and confidently and boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm. I will not fear. I will not dread. I will not be terrified. Why? Because I have the power of the living word of God in my mouth spoken out over that situation. Now you have to understand here it's, it's that God is not obligating himself to fulfill anything you say. He's obligating himself to fulfill what he has said. It's what he has said that has power. When we declare his word, there is power. That's why you've got to know God's word. That's why you've got to confess it over your health. You confess God's word over your family. That's why I'm saying this is part of effective praying. The word of God is effective in praying. You confess God's word over your finances, over your job, over your kids. Hallelujah. That will give some of you hope right now. Over your kids, you know, everything else in your life. And when we do that, we have the confidence of verse 6. We take comfort and encouragement, and we confidently and boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm or fear or be terrified. Hallelujah. So, know and confess the word of God. Number three, there's the element of crying out to God. If you want to be effective in prayer, you have to move beyond <clears throat> just rote prayers, and you have to, to learn to cry out your heart to God because there is a time in our lives that no one else has the answer for us only Jesus can help us we've got to have God's help and it's when you hit those times that you have got to learn a new discipline in prayer and it's called crying out to God it's in the Bible it's not a rehearsed prayer there's nothing wrong with a rehearsed or memorized prayer there's nothing wrong with a recited prayer I pray prayers that I learned as a little kid and there's nothing wrong with that, but it eventually has to go beyond just what you know in your brain and you start praying out of the, the depths of your soul over a situation. And the Bible refers to that as, as crying out to God. So the Bible is full of encouragement for us to cry out to the Lord. And let me just share a few verses with you. Psalm 18, verse 6. Remember this one. I'm going to refer to it again and again in just a minute. 
David said, in my distress, notice the condition of his heart, he's distressed. Some people think, well, if you're as spiritual as you should be, you'd never be distressed. Fat chance, that's not true. You're going to go through life like everybody else does, just so you got the victor on your side. Hallelujah, all right? But when I was distressed, he said, I called upon the Lord. And look at this. He said, I know when I called, I cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple, out of his dwelling place. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. So it's the cry of God, not just a, 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 a recited prayer. Nothing wrong with a recited prayer. I'm saying there need, it needs to go deeper in you. You need to let God touch the depths of your soul that's what gets his attention. Psalm 55, verse 17, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their what? Their cry, not doesn't say prayer, it says their cry. Jeremiah 33, 3, remember this one too, because I'm going to refer to it again. Let your cry come uh, come to me, I will give to you an answer and let you see great things and secret things of which you had no knowledge. In other words, God said, I'm going to take you to a level that you've never experienced before, secret things, uh, great things that you've not experienced before, and it comes because you've learned to start crying out to God uh, in a depth of your heart. Let me read you what one Christian author uh, wrote. After knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching and studying on his word for many years, it was, not only, it was only recently that I made what was for me a life-changing discovery. I saw that the Bible makes a distinction between prayer and crying out to God. What I have noticed since that time is that he will arrange or allow circumstances to arise that seem to have no solution and then do nothing to remove the problem. You ever been there? Until... I cried out, and not one second sooner, until I started crying out. That's when the answer came. Each situation seems so hopeless, and sometimes a cry seems so futile. Yet this is precisely the setting God wants to, in order to demonstrate his loving care and his powerful hand of protection. Sometimes a cry will bring freedom from emotional bondage. In other cases, God will provide healing from a dread disease, help in a moment of grave danger, or clear direction in a season of deep perplexity. In every circumstance, the need to cry out is a humbling reminder of my total inability to accomplish anything significant for God. And the result of crying out is a wonderful demonstration of his supernatural power to achieve all that is needed. For most of my life, I assumed that crying out was simply synonymous with prayer. I think that probably most of us would say the same thing. We would read those scriptures and think David's just using another word for prayer. He's not. Synonymous with prayer. I've come to be amazed, however, to see the specific purposes and potential for crying out and how this is emphasized time and again in scripture. He who wants your heart also wants your voice. So from my perspective, I think crying out to God involves three things. First of all, it will involve persistence. You have to be a persistent individual in terms of being effective for God in prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I wonder how many times we're right on the threshold 
of the answer and we quit. We, got, we let the devil discourage us and we gave up. Don't give up, ever. I remember a guy in a church that we pastored before, he had come forward for prayer multiple times, kind of like we have prayer team down here, and he had come forward for prayer and he hadn't been healed yet. And he came to me and says, well, how, how many times do I need to come forward? And I said, well, that's simple, until you're healed. Now, I don't know why God took time with him. I don't. I have learned that there is some, some benefit to us when God withholds and we are, we are forced to persistently go after. He is doing something inside of us, purifying us in a way that is essential. And then the answer comes. The second word I would use is the word passion. Now, here's where I'm going to refer back to those scriptures. Hebrews 33, 3, where the Lord said there, let your cry come to me. The word cry there actually means to call aloud or cry out. So have you ever participated in a church that said that you have to be very quiet or God doesn't like it? They haven't apparently read this scripture, and that's what the word cry means in, in Hebrew 33, uh, in Jeremiah. The Hebrew means in Jeremiah 33, 3. It means to call out aloud and to cry out. In Psalm 18, verse 6, the Hebrew word there means a high-pitched shout for help. So there is, there is the time to be still and know that he is God. But for, there, that, You know that was mentioned one time in the Bible? But over and over and over again, it tells us to clap our hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. There is something about that that releases faith. The third word I would use is the word patience. We're all very patient, aren't we? Galatians 6, 9 says, at just the right time, we will reap what we're asking for if we don't give up. If we don't give up. So don't give up. Be patient and let God work. Now, the fourth key to effective praying involves, I would use the word trust. Psalm verse, or chapter 4, verse 3 says, See how the Lord has made great his mercy for me. The Lord will give ear to my cry. I want to encourage you today to trust that God will heal you. I want you to encourage you today that, to trust that God is working in your behalf. Trust him. I want you to trust that his plan is good, even if you don't understand it. He's working out a good plan. I trust you with this, Lord. Trust that his timing is perfect. I want you to know that you can trust Jesus with your finances. I want you to know you can trust him with your health. I want you to know you can trust him with your marriage and with your family, your kids. I want you to know that you can trust him with your soul. If you've ever wondered if Jesus would forgive you, I just want to tell you that the cross is his answer. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.